I'll tell you my favorite theory on what happens next. It's the favorite one I've heard just through absorbing everything on Twitter and YouTube. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome back to the show. This is how it goes. The U.S. Treasury has not been able to issue debt in the last, let's say, month or two since this debt ceiling issue has happened. And so as a result, a lot of the money that might have gone into buying debt perhaps has gone into the stock market. In a sense, it's given the stock market liquidity. And so in turn, once the government is able to issue debt again, then a lot of that liquidity that is in the stock market will be able to go into bonds again. Further, adding to this narrative, the government itself will have a desire for low interest rates. Of course, they don't want to pay a super high interest rate on all this new debt that they have to issue. And how do you do that? Well, I guess there's got to be problems in the stock market. Maybe it means a rate hike coming up. That could mean a drawdown in stocks and, you know, maybe bond yields go lower as demand goes higher. So, again, very speculative here, but it's kind of my favorite theory, so I thought I would share it. But we have to be careful with that because there are a lot of people right now that would love to see the market take a step lower. Not many people are in NVIDIA. Not many people have bought into the tech stocks. So there is a sense that there are a lot of people that are just waiting for this thing to roll over and it keeps getting extended, it keeps getting extended. Will this be the time? Will liquidity dry up? While we're on the bond front, I mean, it's strained a little bit from mining here, but this is quite something. I am looking at the UK 10-year gilt, the 10-year bond out of the UK. It is yielding 4.305%. Now, why is that so significant? Because remember the pension funding crisis last October, I believe it was, where there was a concern that UK pensions would go bankrupt unless they turned on the money spigots? Had they not resorted to emergency QE for a few weeks? Remember that? Well, you know what the yield was at the peak year, as far as I can tell from CNBC here, the highest I read is 4.458%. So let's call it 4.46%. We are only 0.15% away from that. So surely this has to be you know, a cause for concern out there. So that really has my attention right now. All these markets, as we all know, are related. And with that, we've also seen a rising US dollar. So gold has taken a breather as we start to walk into summer here. Here we are at May 30th, you know, drifting into summer, selling May and go away. We shall see this episode, I'm very happy to welcome Cam Curry to the show. He is with Canaccord Genuity, and he is a senior investment advisor with over 30 years of experience with a specialty in the precious metal sector. So he's a fascinating person. He said he would come back, and I am looking forward to it because as I told him afterwards, I felt like we were just scratching the surface there. He is a very good speaker and very interesting to listen to. So it is a real treat that you have in store for you with Cam Curry coming up here as our feature content on this week's episode. And also the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has inducted new inductees. 
And we have a story here from Blair McBride of the Northern Miner. The Canadian Mining Hall of Fame held its 35th annual induction ceremony on May 24th at the Carlou in Toronto, welcoming three new honorees and bringing the total membership up to 203. The celebration was attended by 530 people and hosted by the Northern Miner Group's President Anthony Vaccaro and President and CEO of Mining Association of Canada, Pierre Graton, and they inducted Jim Cooney, who was celebrated for his work in sustainability development and encouraging the adoption of policy to improve mining's environmental and social impacts. So well ahead of his time, Douglas Belfour Silver, who helped improve due diligence in the mining industry, and he created several high-valuable royalty portfolios in Canada. And finally, Alexander John Davidson, who was behind the discovery of major deposits in Canada and South America and his leadership within Barrick Gold, helped advance the company into the world's leading gold producer. And also coming up, all sorts of your favorite stories on our favorite themes here. I mean, it feels like the world news more and more, doesn't it? It is news of the Earth's resources and the people on that Earth and that interrelationship. You know, I was listening to the Rain podcast, a popular geopolitics podcast, and they had a very interesting definition. They had a guy come on, I wish I could remember his name, talking about South Korea. And he was asked on what the definition of geopolitics was, and it was quite interesting. He said, I take a traditional definition. Geopolitics is the study of the effects of Earth's geography on politics and international relations. And I was also reading that book, The Grand Chessboard by Zygmunt Brzezinski. What he says in there, here's just a brief quote from the book, just to give you a sense of how important Ukraine is. Again, this is from 1997. Ukraine, a new important space on the Eurasian chessboard, is a geopolitical pivot And Brzezinski contrasts geopolitical players and geopolitical pivots. Players are like the more powerful ones, whereas pivots are those countries that lie because of their geography, where they are, in very crucial strategic places. So Brzezinski is calling Ukraine a pivot. And as he says here, Ukraine, a new important space on the Eurasian chessboard, is a geopolitical pivot because its very existence as an independent country helps to transform Russia. Without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be a Eurasian empire. Russia without Ukraine can still strive for imperial status, but it would then become a predominantly Asian imperial state, more likely to be drawn into debilitating conflicts with aroused Central Asians, who would then be resentful of the loss of their recent independence, and would be supported by their fellow Islamic states to the south. China would also be likely to oppose any restoration of Russian domination over Central Asia, given its increasing interest in the newly independent states there. However, if Moscow regains control over Ukraine with its 52 million people and major resources as well as its access to the Black Sea, Russia automatically again regains the wherewithal to become a powerful imperial state spanning Europe and Asia. Ukraine's loss of independence would have immediate consequences for Central Europe, transforming Poland into the geopolitical pivot on the eastern frontier of a united Europe. So I found that quite illuminating as to, you know, motivations on both sides. Who owns Ukraine seems to determine a lot 
about Russian power. And, you know, it's just like they always say, like, is Ukraine a strategic interest of the United States? It's debatable. But for Russia, it seems to be essential. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, GM secures financial support for an EV battery plant in Quebec. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. General Motors and POSCO Future have secured half of the financing for a $600 million Canadian electric vehicle battery component plant in Quebec from the provincial and federal governments. $600 million financing. In March 2022, the U.S. and South Korean companies announced plans to form a joint venture dubbed Altium Cam and build a cathode material factory in Beconcourt, halfway between Montreal and Quebec City. Cathodes represent about 40% of the cost of a battery cell, according to General Motors. 40%? The carmaker has committed to invest $35 billion in electric and autonomous vehicles between 2020 and 2025. $35 billion? The government of Canada and Quebec will each contribute around $150 million to the project, which is expected to create 200 jobs. The plant is scheduled to be in operation within two years. Well, there sure is a lot of money flying around to create 200 jobs, isn't there? And we have a quote from the Quebec government who said on Monday in a news release, quote, this production will be used to manufacture batteries for GM's Altium program, which aims to produce 1 million electric vehicles a year by 2025. The Canadian government has been under pressure since Stellantis, NV, and LG Energy Solutions suspended the construction of their Windsor, Ontario $5 billion battery plant two weeks ago, unsatisfied with government support. The Stellantis plant was announced before the U.S. passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year, which offers attractive cleantech support for companies. Beconcourt, a small town of around 14,000 people, is set to become Quebec's hub for electric vehicle battery component production over the next few years. Germany's BASF and Brazilian miner Valet have also committed to invest in the region. Interesting development again with the car companies. Siemens Gamesa to cut reliance on China for rare earths permanent magnets. This is Reuters via mining.com. Wind turbine maker Siemens Gamesa is hoping to cut its dependence on China in some critical parts of its supply chain, its CEO said, adding that while there was interest from customers, such a move would lead to higher prices. So they want to cut off China from their supply chain, but that it would lead to higher prices. Jochen Eichholt said that Siemens Gamesa was nearly 100% dependent on China for rare earths and permanent magnets, which are among the critical materials needed to make wind turbines. And he told reporters in Cuxhaven, Germany, quote, we are considering offering a more diversified supply chain in the future if that is what customers want. This is more expensive and can add a few percentage points to the price, Eichholt added, without specifying what an acceptable supply chain mix would be. Interesting story. So basically, we're happy to reduce our reliance on China, but it's going to cost you more money. You know, it it's kind of brings up this whole issue that I was speaking with Cam Curry about which is what happens when you just don't have the metal in theory the price goes up and more metal shows up but i mean isn't there a point when you run out of the metal and 
you know, at what point is too expensive if everybody is trying to get off Chinese rare earths, then everybody is trying to get them from somewhere else. Continuing on, oil giant ExxonMobil jumps on lithium wagon. It's by a staff writer at Northern Miner. ExxonMobil has made a telling move this week by acquiring drilling rights to a sizable area of southern Arkansas in the U.S. believed to be rich in battery metals rock star lithium. According to the Wall Street Journal, the oil giant paid $100 million to exploration company Galvanic Energy for the 120,000-acre property estimated to contain enough lithium to supply 50 million electric vehicles. So Exxon gets into lithium, interestingly. Continuing on, China-Congo presidents meet in Beijing amid mining disputes. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. So we have been tracking this because the... DRC president was not happy with the current deals made with China and felt like they were getting a raw deal. So now it looks like China has invited Felix Chi Sikedi to China. Chinese President Xi Jinping met his counterpart from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chi Sikedi, on Friday in Beijing as the two countries seek to relaunch a partnership worth tens of billions of dollars in trade each year. The governments agreed to conduct regular reviews of their cooperation in the mining industry and address related disputes through quote-unquote friendly negotiations, Chinese state broadcaster CCTV reported, citing a joint statement from the two nations. They also announced their bilateral relationship will be upgraded to a comprehensive strategic cooperative partnership. Now remember, and again this speaks to our interview with Cam Curry coming up here, You know, copper is very important. So you can imagine that China will be very interested in keeping on good terms with Congo. And here is another story by Reuters, Congo to hike stake in copper cobalt venture with China. This came out the day before. The Democratic Republic of Congo aims to boost its stake in a cobalt and copper joint venture with Chinese firms to 70% from 32%. On concerns, the deal gave away too much of Congo's resources with little benefit to the country. The plan to boost Congo's stake and have greater control in managing the Sika Mines venture, currently dominated by Chinese firms, was detailed in a document seen by Reuters that outlined Congo's demands ahead of talks to overhaul a $6 billion infrastructure for minerals agreement. So it sounds like they wanted a higher degree of ownership and that China has basically made it better. I mean, probably what China wants is a guarantee that the copper will be sold to them. That's probably what China is asking for. And with a 30% stake, they can still have a fair degree of influence on where that copper gets sent to. Continuing on, Namibia considers taking stakes in mining and petroleum companies. So we're seeing resource nationalism on all fronts here. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And it says here Namibia is considering taking minority stakes in mining and petroleum production companies amid increasing concerns over local ownership of valuable resources. And we have a quote from Mines and Energy Minister Tom Elwindo, who told lawmakers on Monday, quote, we are making a case that local ownership must start with the state, which holds ownership of our natural resources. The proposed state ownership should take the form where the state owns a minimum equity percentage in all mining companies and petroleum production for which it does not have to pay. Namibia is one of Africa's biggest producers of diamonds and largest of uranium. In February, Impact Oil and Gas said it will start a multi-well drilling program in the country with Total Energies, which discovered oil offshore last year. Australian 
uranium company Paladin Energy plunged as much as 23% to its lowest since August 2021. The company gets all of its revenue from Namibia, according to Bloomberg compiled data. The arid southwest African nation joins others such as Zimbabwe, Brazil, Chile, Indonesia, Philippines, and Peru that are pushing for more value from their minerals or considering increased state intervention, partly due to higher commodity prices. What's interesting, too, as prices haven't really, other than lithium, it's not like prices have gone to the moon on commodities yet. Like, what happens then? And just a headline here, Botswana president insists on bigger share of diamonds from De Beers Venture, that's Reuters, via mining.com. And here is the quote from President Mokwitsi Masisi, Quote, our agreement with De Beers is very restrictive to us. We signed it at a time when we didn't know much, but now our eyes are open. Even if we lose the litigation, our diamonds will remain ours and we will never give in. If I'm going to lose votes because of this issue, then so be it. So resource nationalism is an emotional issue. I mean, we see it with tech resources here in Canada. Continuing on, Indonesia to allow exports of five raw minerals despite June ban. Reuters via mining.com. Indonesia will continue shipping raw materials for the next year, despite a looming export ban, its mining ministers told Parliament on Wednesday, as companies rush to finish smelters to process the ore domestically. So it looks like they're getting an extension here. So very interesting. And also on the resource nationalism front, Cadelco and SQM to meet next week to discuss state control. Reuters via mining.com. I mean, it's everywhere now. Chile's state-owned mining company, Cadelco and SQM, will hold a meeting next week to discuss a new lithium contract where Cadelco will have a majority control, company executives said Friday. So that is actually a development here, that Cadelco will have majority control. Quote, we agreed to formalize a meeting that will start next week. And quote, SQM CEO Ricardo Ramos told reporters after meeting with Cadelco's chairman, Maximo Pacheco, in Santiago. And Pacheco also said, quote, we put a very clear condition that Cadelco is going to enter this association and will be part of this joint venture in a position of majority control. It's going to be an extremely complicated negotiation, he said, adding that he hopes that talks will bear fruit this year. Wow. In a separate statement, SQM said it expects negotiations to be confidential and will refrain from commenting publicly until the final documents are signed or, quote, negotiations are terminated, end quote. A couple more headlines here. Zinc inventories in LME warehouse jumped 64% in two days. Reuters via mining.com. So, I mean, we were mentioning the aluminum market last week. So more volatility at the LME is the takeaway. Here's another one. LME aluminum stocks climbed by over 20,000 tons in South Korea. So this is Reuters via mining.com, and where do you hear this? So London Metal Exchange inventories of aluminum jumped by over 20,000 tons in Guanyang, South Korea, a location that has seen large gains in recent months, data showed on Tuesday. So we were reading those stories about how they're getting really close to concerns about supply. Remember the LME surveillance team was in on the action and saying that they were keeping calm in the markets. Continuing on here, the LME said its daily inventory report failed to show a delivery of 16,125 tons of aluminum T-bars into warehouses in Guanyang due to an error, but the totals were correct. So the daily inventory had an error, but the overall totals were correct. The totals showed aluminum inventories in Guanyang and warehouses certified by the LME surged by 20,875 tons 
bringing the total in all global LME storage facilities to 575,875 tons. Guanyang makes up 41% of total LME inventories for aluminum storage. Since March 1st, aluminum stored in the port has jumped by 38%. In April, one source with knowledge of the matter told Reuters that commodity trader Glencore had deposited more Russian aluminum in Guanyang warehouses. It was unclear the source of the current arrivals in Guanyang. Higher stocks of Russian aluminum produced by Rusal on the LME are a concern for producers as they could weigh on benchmark aluminum prices used as a reference in contracts between buyers and sellers. And finally, just a headline here echoing what we were saying last week, a column from Reuters via mining.com, aluminum is the West's critical minerals blind spot. So that one, the title said a lot. And here are a couple more headlines. Tin prices rise on Myanmar supply worry. So a concern on tin. Iraq boosts gold reserves by 2% in a single day in gradual buildup. Well, that doesn't sound very gradual if they're increasing their gold reserves by 2% in a single day. But that is your headline from Bloomberg News. And finally, copper loses battle in fight for critical mineral status in the U.S. Very interesting. Mining.com editor, U.S. Geological Survey has told congressmen and senators that copper has not reached the status of critical minerals needed to be added to the official list of commodities at risk of undersupply, the Copper Development Association said. So this is quite interesting because a lot of what we hear on the fundamentals of copper is it's one of the greatest supply-demand stories you're ever going to find. And here the CDA, Copper Development Association President and CEO Andrew G. Carreta, said in a statement, quote, continued supply trends and solid data confirm that the supply risk for copper is not a short-term issue that will self-correct without determined, immediate, and strategic action. Very interesting. So there seems to be different interpretations of whether there will be a shortage of copper or not. And finally, hedge funds bet against copper for first time in three years. So now hedge funds are starting to get bearish on copper. That is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. You can read all about it on Northern Miner and Mining.com. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Gold is trading at $1,943.49 per ounce. That is $38 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.16 per ounce. That is $0.69 cents lower than last week. Platinum is also lower at $1,024.92 per ounce. That is $44 lower than last week, and palladium is also lower at $1,420.02 per ounce, and that is $69 lower than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.66 per pound, that is a penny lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $105.41 per ton, that is $2 lower than last week. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.02 per pound. Lead is two cents lower at 94 cents per pound. Nickel continues to go lower at $9.54 per pound. That is six cents lower than last week. Tin is also lower at $11.27 per pound. That is 27 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is also lower at $13.39 per pound. That is a dollar and 45 cents lower 
than last week. And lithium is the outlier, much higher at $42.04 per kilogram. So that is $10 higher than last week. And uranium is 20 cents higher at $53.60 per pound. And finally, zinc is four cents lower at $1.06 per pound. So zooming out, we see all the metals are basically down, and it seems like the culprit here is the U.S. dollar. And of course, there are two big exceptions, lithium especially, which seems like it's up close to 30% here, above $40 at $42, jumping from 32 and uranium 20 cents higher. But overall, it looks like the dollar wrecking ball is doing its work on the metals here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Cam Curry to the Northern Miner podcast for the first time. He is a dedicated senior investment advisor with over 30 years of experience. He specializes in precious metals sector and has played a significant role in project exploration and development funding with direct involvement in large equity raises. Many of these companies have been taken over, which for Cam is the, quote, ultimate win for both his investing and corporate clients. Fascinating interview, I have to say. We had a wonderful conversation both before, during, and after the interview. We share an interest in Robert Schiller's great concept of narrative economics, and he touches on it here. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Cam Curry, Senior Investment Advisor at Curry's Metals and Mining, which acts under the umbrella of Canaccord Genuity for the first time to Northern Miner Podcast. Cam, welcome to the show. Adrian, thank you so much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to doing this podcast. Well, I'm thrilled that you agreed to do it. Just our pre-talk here has been fascinating already, so it's good that we just hit record here. So it seems like we could go many different places here, but maybe let's just start very big picture here. You know, we concern ourselves with metals over here and mining. What is it that investors, what should people who are interested in economics be concerned about right now? What should people be paying attention to? Well, that's a very loaded question. And uh, first of all, I think I have to break it down. When I talk about metals and mining, let's break it down to two different metal groups right now. Let's base metals and precious metals. And it's, it's long withstood that uh, copper is a PhD in economics, and that's why it's been important in price movement. But with the advent of EV and electrification of the world, it adds a whole new dimension to copper because of the demand side coming forward. But it also complicates even further because supply side shocks in copper a uh, lot to do with the real story. So although copper price is a narrative of economics, the supply is going to be constrained for a long period of time because there's no new big projects coming on. And the demand is going to escalate over the next 10 years as we work towards these mandates of electrification. So the pricing of copper is no longer a PhD in economics. It's delivered a lot more by demand supply side. As I say that, I think copper right now is in a correction mode because I do see an acceleration of this move towards recession taking place. And the data points are pointing every which direction for us on that. And so I think copper price will come down and this will create a great investment opportunity for the copper equities as this presents itself 
purely because of the demand supply issue that I just mentioned. On the gold side, that's a totally different situation because you have to be a, a student of macroeconomics and, uh, and geopolitical changes that are taking place to understand the real picture on gold, which I think the Western world, to a great extent, is oblivious to. Last year, 1,700 tons of gold were bought by Eastern Central Banks as they diversified out of U.S. dollars for various reasons. The weaponization of the U.S. dollar, the reserve status of the U.S. dollar is now being challenged by the autocracies, and the concern about the fiscal house of the U.S. dollar. And you know the investment demand for gold equities is non-existent despite the topics I just mentioned. Okay, excellent. So let's break this down. And thank you for breaking this down into industrial, maybe, and precious metals to a certain degree. Let's start with copper a little bit. As you say, it's like Dr. Copper traditionally. And I totally agree with what you're saying here in the sense that I call it a tale of two narratives. And maybe you'll like that being a purveyor of narrative economics in the sense that on one hand, we have this recession narrative and the, you know, deflation and we may be heading the second half could be nasty. We have tightening of monetary policy. Theoretically, liquidity is tightening. So we have kind of this recession narrative. And on the other hand, we have what I call the peak everything narrative where we're running out of metal. We're going to hit an energy crisis. We don't have enough metals that we're going to need to do this energy transition, which is aggressively being pushed. And so these two narratives are colliding. And it seems to me that there's kind of a what I almost want to call like a time arbitrage opportunity to your point, I think you're saying where we could get a short-term decline in copper, which could be a great opportunity to invest. What do you make of everything I just told you? You know, I completely concur with what you're saying. It's a convergence of two different narratives. And I think for the astute investor, it's going to create a phenomenal buying opportunity in the copper stories. I mean, there's just nothing coming down the pipeline. I mean, then you tack on, you know, projects coming to production. I mean, we had our problems in Chile and Peru. What people also don't really realize is... You know, sure, this EV movement in North America is very pro-copper, but there's no projects being permanent in North America, in the United States. It's like the U.S. wants to be EV, but we don't want to mine in our own yard. Whereas if you look at where the big copper ownerships are, China has been building relationships in the DRC, South America, and so they're getting control of the resources. The big ball mills that are being shipped to new mines, a lot of them are Russian-based mines. And so copper price is copper price, but if you can't get the physical, in Arizona, for example, I mean, we were down there recently and we looked at a project and across the valley was an old BHP project that got shut in in 2002 when copper was 65 cents. And it's estimated there's 800 million tons of 0.8% copper equivalent sitting in that deposit. There's been no movement whatsoever because, you know, BHP is not going to move on it because there's no political will yet. So it's, it, it complicates things even further. So, like I said, long term, I'm so bullish on copper. Short term, I just think the narrative is going to dominate recession. And as this recession does start getting traction, which I think it's really started picking up traction in the last month, that is going to create a flush and a great opportunity. I just don't know when that opportunity is going to be in its bottoming phase. Just before we move on from copper, do you have a preference of equities, copper equities over the metal itself? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you're bullish on something, you can buy the commodity, but the real leverage is in the companies because you get a 50 cent move in copper, that's a 50 cent move in copper. 50 cents move to the bottom line is, is leverage. And uh, I don't trade in commodities. I'm an equities investor. And then on top of that, you can find some great growth opportunities in the copper space that can leverage off of copper price movements. 
or Discoveries for that matter. I was very fortunate to go alongside the Lundin family on Philo at $1.85 a share when they raised money two years ago when no one was paying attention. And uh, now that's turned out to be one of the biggest copper discoveries in the, in the last decade, far from over. That is fascinating. Were they taken out or are they still going? No, BHP came in about 4.9% of them in the financing, and it's a world-class district now. It's called the Vicunga District down in Argentina, going to Chile. And the Lundin family recognized the opportunity of this, although they staked the land, believe it or not, in 1996. And they didn't come through with the big sulfide discovery till two years ago, which again is a message I want to make in that even if copper prices goes to $5 a pound tomorrow, you can't fix supply side because these deposits take a long time to be discovered and they take years and years and years to build. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I had a guest, I think it was from Global X ETFs and she was out of London and I said, you know, what happens when the LME runs out of copper? Like, I guess the price goes up, but kind of to your point, when there's no copper, there's no copper, right? Well, that's and that's one of the concerns that the this political narrative in the U.S. drives us nuts, quite honestly, because you look what's going on and who's controlling the resources. Like, you go to the DRC, who's there? China. I mean, who's in South America? China. China's building relationships with Brazil, Argentina. You look at all these relationships that are coming along. And so copper projects are scarce. And if they're controlled by the autocracies, I mean, you know, they've got huge demand and they've got control of offtakes, right? So with copper in mind, then, do you have any thoughts on this tech resources deal that Glencore was trying to do and is still trying to do as far as I understand? Well, you know what, I do, but I'm not going to make comment on that. I mean, it's just, again, because you've got a government also that's going to try to protect assets too. And then you have Pierre Lasson step in on the coal side. So it's a very complicated situation that to dive into it, I don't, I'm not inside the room, so I can't make comment. But uh, I mean, again, it goes back to the fact it's, it's a recognized asset, the scarcity of assets, and Glencore is recognizing that. That's part and parcel of what we're talking about, about projects and supply, right? Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. So turning over then to precious metals then, you're discussing, I think, the geopolitical nature of the precious metals. Let's give you a simple question to start with. Are you excited about gold right now? I'm very excited about the gold price and, and the gold industry where it is right now. You know, gold was just recently above $2,000 an ounce without any fanfare. No one's paying attention. The gold equities are in the best financial shape they've ever been, and yet they're trading at the cheapest valuations since 2015-16. And again, going back to what I mentioned before about the narrative, there's zero narrative towards gold and gold equities in the Western world because no one's paying attention to it. They're all buying the dips in U.S. equities thinking that, you know, there's no recession and the equity game is on still. And yet, from the outside of the Western world, the autocracies and the Eastern Central Banks and that, last year they bought 1,700 tons of gold and they've been diversifying out of US dollars. And what people don't realize in North America or have forgotten is that the three reserve currencies of the world are the US dollar, the euro, and gold. So gold is a reserve currency. And what's unique about gold is gold's the only reserve currency in the world that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. And so you start looking at it as a reserve currency, it's presenting itself in a very, very, very attractive way to people who are looking at diversifying the U.S. dollars. And you just don't hear that conversation in North America. 
Yeah, it presents a very interesting opportunity. And I was even thinking, if we go into some sort of recession, gold doesn't necessarily do terrible. Maybe it even does well. And then concurrently, maybe you have an oil price that's kind of falling, right? I mean, that could be uh, quite the fireworks in theory. I mean, again, very speculative here. But the gold equities, and they've been kind of boring and not doing that great. I mean, they're up, you know, maybe, I don't know, 50% since October, but they're coming off of a very pretty lame performance in the last few years here. I mean, drilling down a bit, uh, so there's gold you like. You hear a lot about platinum these days. Well, there's not a lot of pure platinum play. It's a byproduct, right? And that's one of the problems. And silver, the same thing. I mean, there's very few silver projects. It's a byproduct. And, you know, quite honestly, on a supply side issue, there's a metal that's going to have a serious supply side issue moving forward because it's part of the EV movement, silver. You know, as these big projects have not been built, I mean, some of these big CapEx projects are four, five, six billion dollar CapEx. And we haven't seen those things going into production by the big boys. And so platinum or silver? So I'm talking about silver. Yeah. Okay. So, so EVs yeah. and silver. Yes. Oh, yeah. How is silver used in EVs? Well, silver is a conductor of electricity. So it's used in your, I mean, it's, it's part of the whole electrification. And it's also part of solar panels. Sure. It's also yeah. part of all, all the electronics of digital movements, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, silver is used in your everyday life. And, uh, and so people don't really think of it that way. No, not at all. I mean, I've heard of silver, of course, with solar panels and whatnot, but I've actually never heard it being used in terms of EVs. So that is very interesting. You mentioned the gold as being a major currency. I mean, it reminds me of Jeffrey Christian saying, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, referring to gold being a currency of sorts, then it is one. And before we were talking, you talked about this autocratic G8. Would you want to Talk a bit about that, because I think it's a new term that most people probably haven't heard. Well, it's G8, but it's really 16 countries now, and it's basically the alignment of the autocracies. You've got China, Russia, you've got uh, Saudi Arabia, Middle East, you've Iran now kind of quasi in the fold, Argentina, Brazil, Turkey. You've got these countries that are they're aligning a different trade organization, and they've been precluded from the G7. And as China's strength continues to challenge the U.S., that global network is aligning itself on a different transaction basis. And we surmise that that's one of the major reasons why last year there were such significant increases in gold holdings by these central banks. Because I don't know what ultimately what's going to come out of it, but there's going to be some sort of new reserve status of some sort that has some sort of gold-related asset back. Because, you know, China continues to add gold on a, on a quarterly basis. All the signs are, are showing that they're all doing the same thing. And what's also interesting, just on that note, I'll just mention that you look at the Swiss pension fund, for example, their buyers are physical gold. And that's one of the biggest bullion banks, countries in the world. Singapore, their pension funds buyers are gold. And they're also a big vault in the, in, on the world stage as well. So they're seeing this shift out of US dollars. And we get no narrative of that in North America. And it's just an obvious one from outside of North America, North America is not paying attention to. And it's just every major reserve currency in the world has had a significant backing of gold. China right now, I think last two months ago, announced they had 2,100 tons of gold as a reserve base. 
They have substantially more than that, in, in our views, because they just keep on accumulating it. Because if they want to have a currency that's going to have a reserve status, that's going to challenge the U.S., every reserve status currency has a significant weighting in gold, and they're far from that level. Excellent. Okay. And so just as we're wrapping up here, then you say you deal mostly with equities. What is your feeling of the general market then in in contrast, say, with the metals? Well, in the precious metals, I'll go back to January 1st, 2022. The first group that came out very bullish on precious metals was a group called Mercer Group, and they're advisors to $15 trillion of global assets. And they rejigged their 60-40 bond equity portfolio to incorporate a 5% weighting in precious metals because of concerns of bond risk, equity risk, and inflation, and stagflation. Well, fast forward now, gold's up 8% since then, bonds were down 15%, so equities were down 18%. So that strategy has proven to be successful, and yet nobody talks about it. So, you know, gold as an asset class has been performing. Last year was a very disappointing year because last year the U.S. dollar went exponential with the uh, interest rates going up, the biggest percentage change in 14 months in history. So the dollar exponentialized, and so gold went down in U.S. dollars. And it really damaged people's confidence in the gold equities because everything gold-friendly happened, but gold went down. But if you were in other countries like Turkey or the Middle East, gold went to all-time highs, and it protected you against the dollar because a lot of these countries carry their debt in U.S. dollars. So gold has served its purpose. It just didn't serve the purpose in U.S. dollars. And so that was one of the reasons why our equities are so undervalued and underowned, because last year was so disappointing. And that creates the opportunity in the gold equities right now. Interesting. And almost as we were saying, because oil was sort of seen as the spoiler a little bit last year for the mining equities. And so maybe with a lower oil price, perhaps... It's kind of hit that Goldilocks sweet spot. And do you have an outlook then for the dollar? Do you guys do that over there? Well, first of all, there being Canaccord genuity, everyone has their own opinions. I'm bearish on dollar. I'm a big student of a number of people, and one of which is Stanley Druckenmiller. And I don't know if you know who he is, but Stanley became famous when he managed Short Soros' Fund in 1992 when he shorted the British pound. And uh, Bank of England actually criticized them because that's had a significant impact on, on the British pound. But uh, if you listen to any of his most recent interviews, one of the surest investments he sees right now is U.S. dollar down. And he's actually come forward and said that one way of positioning yourself on that is buying precious metals. And I just think, you know, when you have $32 trillion in debt and you have an economy that's rolling over, I think the U.S. dollar weakness is going to continue. And so if, if you have to ask yourself a question, if you're looking down the world right now and you had to buy a basket of currencies, you know, U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar, Euro, Japanese yen. Gold has to be part of it because gold's the only one that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. And as I said, the Eastern banks in that, they're recognizing that, and they're the buyers. And they're telling us where we're going. Well, I think I saw that interview. Uh, that made some waves there with Stanley Druckenmiller, or maybe it was a speech he gave. I heard that one, and that was quite interesting. Now, I guess just as we're wrapping up, what are we not thinking about? What are you thinking about in terms of, I mean, okay, so gold looks attractive, dollar maybe kind of bearish on a personal level. Uh, what else are you thinking about? Or is that basically the main focus here? Is there anything concerning you? Well, I mean, you look at Silicon Valley and First Republic, and everyone talks about what happened there. And that was a tremor, of course. I think there's a lot more tremors in regional banks. Canadian banks, today they came out, loan loss provisions were up for the first time. It takes 12 months for a loan loss to come through the banking system. So I think we're in the early stages of that. 
But I think one thing people aren't really looking back on, last October, to refresh some people's memories, there were some pension funds in England that were going insolvent. And the Bank of England interjected 85 billion pounds to liquefy the system. Those pension funds were doing something very similar to what Silicon Valley was doing, right? And so I think one of the things that's coming forward here is unfunded pensions. I mean, we know that last year, bonds and equities are on average down 17%. And we know real estate is weakening, commercial real estate, and pension funds are long all these instruments. And so I think there's a lot more under the hood looking because, again, when you hold interest rates at zero for 10 years and the and global debt goes up by $100 trillion, you've got mispriced assets. So I think asset bubbles are unwinding and the burden of the debt that got those asset prices to where they went has gotten heavier and heavier with these interest rates where they are. And the fallout of that, I think, is still in its early stages. I suspect you're probably right on that one. And just one more I want to sneak in here is, do you guys have a view on Bitcoin and crypto? <laughs> well, yes, I do. And it's I'm, I'm going to be up there with Charlie Munger. I think it'll look, go back in history and it will be one of the biggest speculative bubbles in history. And you know, it's, what's unfortunate in the precious metals world is that Bitcoin stole the thunder because they, Bitcoin was non-government related, it hedged against inflation, and it was a fixed number. And so it stole the thunder. Well, if you really look at what gold is, gold is not politically related. It's, it only goes up by 2% supply a year, so it's kind of a fixed number, and there's no counterparty risk. So gold and Bitcoin, if I had a choice, I was going to put one in a vault and come back 10 years from now. I know it would not be Bitcoin. Okay, excellent. Thank you for answering that. And thank you for your time here. I feel like we're just scratching the surface on so much here. Cam Curry, Senior Investment Advisor at Curry Metals and Mining, under the umbrella of Canaccord Genuity. Thank you so much for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. to say Cam Curry is one of those interviews where I'm already looking forward to the next interview while I'm still interviewing him. Sounds like he'll come back and I'm very much looking forward to that. Thank you once again for joining us. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the summer. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends and until next week, take care.